I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Round Podcast. We're coming to you from the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Ram Podcast for February 7th, 2014, and this is part three of our discussion, Why Buddhism?, with our special guest, Mushim Ikeda. So uh, in our discussion these past couple episodes, uh, it almost came up uh, where we, we've, we've talked about awareness and mindfulness, um, but uh, I think we also want to uh, look at this kind of phenomenon uh, where Buddhism has gotten really popular in the past 10, 20 years, even more so than before, I think. It just continues uh, to get um, to be popular. And the mindfulness uh, has become kind of a buzzword. Um, It's become really, really, uh, I can't say pervasive, but just really a big part of people's understanding of what Buddhism is sometimes. Uh, And so much there's even a little bit of backlash, maybe, that we're beginning to see, which shows you how huge it's getting. Uh, and so we wanted to uh, talk to Mushim uh, about that and hear what she has to say, and she wants to hear what we have to say. So, Well, thank you very much, Reverend Harry. Something that's come to... I'm very interested in this topic because I've noticed the that as secularized mindfulness enters our society, that it. I'm sure it's doing a lot of good, first of all. I want to say that completely am grateful for it. I feel that that there's a beneficial effect. And because we live in a consumeristic society, I'm seeing so much commodification. So it's mindfulness at a price. And there was an essay that came out recently that flew virally around my circles. I was very happy to see it. It was co-authored by someone whose name I don't remember right now and a friend of mine, Professor David Loy, who's also a, a, um, a Zen teacher, and it was they coined the term muk mindfulness for commodified mindfulness and brought up the topic of is, is secularized mindfulness simply a means to become more relaxed more focused, more spaciously concentrated, more positive and upbeat about doing things in the world which might in fact be exploitative and oppressive Mm -hmm. and not having any awareness of that at all because in that that concept, mindfulness is, oh, I'm, I'm mindful now that I'm becoming tense from overwork even uh, because I, I need to really figure out how to make this factory more productive. Maybe I can get my workers to work longer hours at lower wages, and I'm getting kind of twisted up about this, so I'm going to sit in my, in my chair in my office, and I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. Breathing in. Oh, I'm starting to feel better. Yeah, let go. Let go. Let go of that tension. Let go of that anxiety and worry. Hmm, now it's becoming clearer to me. Yes, I can really, my business plan is starting to fall mindfully into place. So, of course, I'm exaggerating for the purposes of the discussion, and I think it's a pertinent discussion. I am teaching at East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland a one-year program called Practice in Transformative Action. Because it was written in as part of a grant 
there are stipulations that this is not a Buddhist program. It is secularized mindfulness for social justice activists and agents of change. It's about social transformation, and of course there are assumptions embedded in that as to what, what that is, what, it, what the positive aspect of, of that is. And it is, it, once again, it is specifically not supposed to be Buddhist or religious in, in that way. Maybe not even spiritual. It's supposed to be secularized mindfulness in the sense of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction and the many disciplines, again, all very helpful. I teach some of them that have come off of that, such as mindfulness-based cognitive behavioral therapy in which we look at afflictive thoughts and challenge them to bring them into accord with a more, usually a more positive reality. So as I was mulling over this one-year program, really what I came down to again and again, and this is because I am Buddhist, is I don't want to give the people in this program something less than what we could really achieve in, in one year. I want to point to the deep end of the pool and so I actually asked all of them, I only asked them to buy one textbook, and that was, in fact, Mindfulness in Plain English by Bhante H. Gunaratna, who is a Sri Lankan monk who's been in this country for many years. And in it, he does not say that mindfulness is being aware of what you're doing as you're doing it. He specifically says mindfulness, in the Buddhist sense, is sati, and that is is pure awareness, which is precognitive, it's preconceptual, we can never use words to define it because words are concepts. However, we can point to what is mindfulness by what it does and, and how it functions, but it, in and of itself can never actually pin it down with words. Now this accords with my own experience as a Zen practitioner and as, as a student of, of the Buddha Dharma and of just of my primary experience. It points to that deep, mysterious, and, and yet I wouldn't even say ineffable. There is a kind of an ineffable realm there. And this is what I was wanted to give to the people in this program. So, so again, that's, that's part of it is that I couldn't actually go deeply into what I considered true mindfulness I had to return to Buddhism, which is a good reason for why Buddhism. <laughs> so there's that. The second thing I wanted to say is that Joseph Goldstein, one of our most prominent teachers of insight or, or Vipassana, mindfulness meditation in the United States, has come out recently with a huge, wonderful book called Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening from Sounds True. And so I'm reading along in it, and he says, he's talking about in the Theravada, the whole teaching of Vedana, sometimes translated as feeling tone. And these are teachings of the Buddha in which he said, says that all human perceptual experience, our thoughts, our emotions, our physical sensations, can be classified in one of three ways, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, meaning neither unpleasant or pleasant. And that awareness of Vedana in everyday actions and as we're doing formal Buddhist practice can, can really help crack open the whole thing. And 
he talks about how, for instance, when you're, if you're doing walking meditation, which can get pretty darn boring, you're just walking back and forth. And he said, if we're aware that if the thought arises, let's have a cup of tea, and that the Vedana or feeling tone is really pleasant, then we may go on to investigate. But will stopping my practice and going to get a cup of tea actually bring me true happiness or help me on the path to to awakening? Well, the answer is probably no. It's a distraction that our mind has cooked up because walking meditation is boring. It's boring. It's not. We don't feel enlightened. It's really getting to be a drag. So, mm, you know, going to go and look at those. 10 different varieties of celestial seasonings, tea, or maybe we'll get really wild and do some caffeinated tea. That's all entertaining. <laughs> it's just really wonderful. And so he, he points that out. And again, that's from the Buddhist teaching. And I thought, well, there we have it. Why Buddhism? Because in secularized mindfulness, so maybe I'm shortchanging them. However, I think part of the understanding in a popularized sense was, so you're doing walking meditation. The thought comes up. Let's have a nice cup of tea. There's no harm in that, really. It's not going to harm me. It's not going to harm anyone. The tea, the tea stand is there. The tea, the tea is there to be drunk. And so um, I'm going to feel like, yes, I'm practicing self-care. I'm being kind and good to myself. Go off, have a nice cup of tea, relax. I'm de-stressing. This is a really good thing. However, it's not... Buddhist practice in that sense, because it does not lead us to look at our conditioned patterns of craving. Mm. Right on. (laughs) So so what do you two think of that? Please. (laughs) It's it's really interesting to hear it um, in a meditational context, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think in Shinshu, we also can talk about mindfulness. So you said sati. And I think the Sanskrit would be smriti, uh, which is found in Buddhanu smriti, uh, which is mindfulness of the Buddha, but also goes as far as visualiza- Buddha visualization, but also goes to the other side of nembutsu. Nembutsu is Buddhanu smriti. It's like a Chinese translation of that. Mm. Um, and so mindfulness is uh, part of the core of Pure Land Buddhism, or it's at the, at the basis of it at the very least. Uh, whether it's a difficult form of visualization and meditative, but then the flip side is the easy practice version of it where this oral recitation of the Buddha's name, uh, which is Nembutsu. Uh, I see in Shinshu, though, another aspect of mindfulness of uh, awareness of myself, right? And, and try kind of that idea of trying to be aware of when my ego is raging, <laughs> when you know I think I'm being good, but I'm being totally self-centered. When you know, just just having, and with with without judgment though, right? To to try and see that, um, and and just see it, and yet it's part of that ethical side of, and hopefully realize, and I don't want to be like that, and yet that's who I am. So Shinju is really interesting because I think our mindfulness doesn't occur in a meditative context but it does occur in a life context, right? Of, of, of uh, that trying to be aware of the fact that um, I'm, I'm being really selfish right now, um, that this is something that I always do, uh, but at the same time, can I change that? There's a kind of a self-acceptance thing that comes in too. Um, 
So, so in that sense, the, listening to you talk about mindfulness, I think Shinshu has could take a different take on it that it's not necessarily in a um, meditative context. Um, I love the. I recently discovered for myself the, the um, positive, negative, neutral kind of analysis. I came up to it more from Abhidharma, like just reading up on mm -hmm. Abhidharma and how Abhidharma tries to analyze experience into its constituent elements, right? But at the same, another aspect of it though is this valuing of it. Is it a positive thing or pleasurable or is it a negative thing, whether it's unpleasurable or, you know, yeah, unpleasurable, I guess, would be a way to put it, or just totally neutral. And that when I look ahead of me, I see colors, I see things, right? And some of the things, it's like, oh, my recording equipment, and it's a nice feeling, right? I love recording, this is what I love doing. And I'm here, my recording equipment. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I see the blue, um, and I like the color blue, maybe, or I don't even see it, I just see the red of the table, and I just, it's there. It's part of my perceptive field, but it's, it's neutral. There's, there's not positive or negative. Um, see, where we do, we, I don't know. I don't, and so it's funny, I don't know that I would take it as far as trying to see that my ego-driven um, aspect of it. That, and that's maybe where Shinshu is interesting, where it's not trying to cut away at that. It's, right, we're not, um, that it's kind of, I think we're kind of okay dwelling in the pleasurable, maybe, <laughs> it's a way to put it, right? That our, our job isn't to try and <clears throat> cut that off. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so, so those are just my in, initial reactions to it, uh, where I think sometimes the ultimate goal, I think, is very similar, but the, the paths of these different forms of Buddhism may be radically different and yet so similar, right? And drawing from the same well but we can have a completely different take on it. I, I, I like the analytical side of Buddhism. I, I just like the self-insight. I think in Shinshu, any self-insight is good. Um, whether it's insight into I'm okay, <laughs> um, or insight into I do that a lot and I don't really want to be that way. Um, or just insight into how it's not all about me, right? That I'm part of this bigger community. I'm part of this bigger web, right? So. But maybe not so much active of then trying to fix things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Although I, I'm not sure that I would understand it in that way. Okay. I don't think it's about fixing. Mm -hmm. I think it's about seeing clearly. Mm. I think it's about seeing clearly. And as a meditation practitioner, I can assure you that any attempt to cut anything off or push anything down or get rid of anything is just whack-a-mole. <laughs> You're going to, you, you can try and it's just going to pop up, wow. usually even more strongly in some other way. So it's, it's more a matter of, I think, the classical teaching, as I understand it, uh, in the Theravada. And I think this, this actualizes itself in Zen, even if it's not taught taught in this words is that as we begin to be more aware of things that are pleasant or pleasurable to us, we become aware that, that it's easy to become attached to them. We cling to them, and then if we don't have them, we're always craving them, and that produces a kind of suffering for us. That we become aware that things that are unpleasant to us, like a pain in our knee, or the thought of having to do our taxes when we're not ready, that that, that um, creates aversion, that creates an aversive 
reaction, and then that means we're pushing something away instead of trying to understand it and deal with it, possibly. And then the neutral, I feel, is a very, really interesting and fruitful area of investigation for a meditator or a practitioner of mindfulness, because neutral things we mostly ignore. And as Bhante Buddha Rakita, who is a Buddhist monk from Uganda, said, when we ignore things, we become ignorant. Mm. Ignoring things produces ignorance. Mm. Mm. Because something that may be neutral to me may be quite fascinating and pleasurable or highly important to you. It's, there's, it's, it's a completely subjective kind of perception. I want to get back to fixing things. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hear what you guys are saying about mindfulness not necessarily being aimed toward fixing things. And I think this might be one of those points of divergence. Um, and since you know more about this than I do, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my feeling is, is that when you go into secular contexts, mindfulness often is implicitly trying to fix things. I'm going to put quotes around fix things. Not necessarily fix things in the way that I need to fix my car when it breaks down or something, but... Um, you know, well, for instance, I'm highly stressed. I want to use mindfulness to become less stressed. Right. How about that? That's a fix. That's a fix, right. I'm trying to fix my stress. I'm trying to get rid of that by doing mindfulness, some sort of mindfulness mm -hmm. practice. I think that's a, a way where we can see some divergence, right? Um, there's part of me that doesn't want to make a fast distinction between... Buddhism proper and however we want to define that and secular practices. Um, I, to me, it seems like these two realms are probably a lot more, um, they overlap a lot more and I think that's a really important conversation to have is where they overlap and why and uh, in what contexts. Um, but I do think that there, what we can say is that there's a sort of, there's, there's two different sort of discursive realms is what I would say, is that there's this discursive realm of, of Buddhism um, that is having a conversation about some things and then another discursive realm that we might call secular practices that are having a conversation about other things. And there's obviously overlap, and that distinction to me is completely arbitrary, and the important thing is to talk about where we would draw that line and that point of contention and where we police those boundaries and, where, and who polices the boundaries, right? Like who gets to decide, okay, this is Buddhism and you're not doing Buddhism, that's an important thing to just pay, to be aware of, um, in, in the, not in the Buddhist sense of mindfulness, but just to be aware of who's, who's, who's making these arguments and for what purposes and why and, um, and what's at stake. Because um, to, to me, I think that it's, it's easy, it's sort of, it, to go back to the, the ignorance and the, um, the neutral part, right, to me, uh, I think a lot of people don't think about this kind of stuff, right? And they're sort of ignoring this distinction between secular practices and uh, quote-unquote religious practices. Um, I, you know, and if we ignore it, <laughs> I think that there's going to be some consequences there, um, especially in a lot of the secular, and, and you mentioned at the beginning of this, the commodification aspects of it. Um, to me, this is, this is one of the primary dangers. Well, this is not one of the primary dangers. It's one of the many concerns I have. Um, when mindfulness or Buddhism or anything becomes so ingrained within the marketplace, then we're necessarily creating a system where only certain people are able to actually use that uh, practice. 
because whenever you put something into the marketplace, there's necessarily a price on it. And I don't care how cheap that price is, there's always people who fall below that. Um, and that's a concern, you know, that's a real concern. Um, you know, let's, let's talk about economics. Like that's an important, you know, and I feel like a lot of public discourse about Buddhism in this country, people don't want to talk about economics. It's like money, money shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about money in a religious context. It's like, no, I think we, I think we absolutely should talk about money because money really has an effect on, on how we're able to do our practice and what we're able to do. You know, if, if you really want to engage in a particular practice, but the only way to do that is to drive three hours away to a retreat and you have to get time off from work and get childcare and a, there's a, you know, a registration fee and all this other stuff, you know, guess what? Guess who's going to show up to that meditation retreat? <laughs> you know, that's a real concern. That's a real concern. And the flip side of that too, I mean, we were talking before about um, uh, Harry, Harry has a real job. He's a minister um, <laughs> with, you know, healthcare and everything. <laughs> um, but then the BCA has this very large institution and it's supported financially. And that's really positive because then we have all of this space in which we can do things, right? We have real estate where we can, we have this big building here in Berkeley where we can have retreats or seminars or conferences. And that's an important thing. We shouldn't just sort of not talk about that, you know, that's relevant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. See, when you were saying about, um I don't know, it's interesting, the thing about like paying taxes or I'm, I'm worried about paying my taxes or, um, um, and I'm definitely a procrastinator. Um, I've, it's deeply ingrained in me and I know that many people do, but I, it's, almost, it's, it's a problem for me very often. And I notice when I'm, sometimes I notice that I'm kind of letting things slide, this, that, the other project or whatever, and sometimes I get this insight Maybe it's because there's this one thing that I really don't want to do. I have to write this letter, or I have to talk, call this person, or I have to make this arrangement. And that snowballs, and it makes me like procrastinate all this other stuff. Um, so I feel like this analytical aspect of Buddhism spills over into that area. That's totally secular in a way. It's nothing to do with being a Buddhist practitioner, right? It's just everyday life stuff. And yet, this kind of analysis and trying to like, why am I doing this, right? And using it as a tool, but I think that's okay. I mean, I think in a way that's kind of a Buddhist enterprise in itself, even though it's just everyday life. But so, so that was really interesting to hear it put in this terms of where is that line between the secular and the religious, right? Because I think Buddhism, we've been saying this whole past few episodes, part of why Buddhism is because I'm living my life and it's about life. So Buddhism can totally spill over into all aspects of our life. Maybe it's when it becomes, well, I don't know. So there's a lot of issues there. What's the problem with secularized Buddhism? Is there a problem? Some, in some ways, no. It's like if it helps someone, then no, it's totally good. But in other ways, sometimes I think that religious Buddhism can be demonized and criticized and uh, put in the negative light. Uh, and there might be who knows what the forces are behind that, uh, you know. Uh, so, so just but it, it just kind of resonated the whole idea of you know procrastinating and um, something's bothering me, the negative, the aversion, right? But three and so a lot of this stuff is three poisons based, right? Yes, it is. Really interesting. I think that that's something that just needs to be taught is three poisons, mm -hmm. and that's very Buddhist, right? And yet it totally fits just everyday life too, outside of a Buddhist context, doesn't it? And to my mind, if, if one could make generalizations, so I'm just 
talking about what I see, and mm. I don't see everything, that is the point of departure, a distinction mm. between Buddhism mm. and secularized mindfulness, is that Buddhism very clearly, it's the second noble truth, right, that provides the analysis mm. of what the causes of dukkha are. Mm. And, and we could say the three poisons. Mm. Uh, greed, which is craving and clinging, hatred, which is aversion, and delusion or, or ignorance. That's the way I was taught. That framework grows ever more meaningful to me in regard to looking at myself, as well as to looking at the society in which I live, as well as to looking at the global economic structures and, and patterns that are dynamics that are going on today. Totally meaningful. I've, uh, it just grows ever deeper for me. On the other hand, so that's, that to me is Buddhism. That's a Buddhist analysis. On the other hand, for someone who is practicing secularized mindfulness, once again, I feel that the way that it's being um, and needs to be taught in, say, a medical facility, in a school, in any place with the general public is is there is no reflection, for instance, on the way anyone earns their money or how their money came to them. And maybe someone might come to it by becoming more mindful. However, maybe again, they, they won't because the, I think the assumption is that we're using mindfulness to become happier and healthier in ways that we define and that would be commonly accepted in society. It doesn't necessarily lead to those deeper waters of maybe I'm becoming happier and healthier at whose expense. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Can I back up just a little bit? Of course. And I don't want to get away from this, this critical aspect yes. of it. But um, three poisons is really interesting to me. Is that religious? Like, it seems like that's part of the ethical framework. It's saying there is, it isn't anything goes. Anger is not, anger leads to more anger and hurt and harm, right? So Buddhism makes these really judgmental things in a way, I think in a good way, but, you know, it's not, oh, we don't believe anything, everything's fine, right? It's like, no, anger, bad. Mm -hmm. Attachment, harmful, not something to be indulged in. Ignorance doesn't get you anywhere. But would people look at that and say, religion? Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of part of the problem, is that this, this distinction that we're making between Buddhism and secularism is based on categories of religion and the secular, which are necessarily Western constructs. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part of the issue, right? One of the things we often talk about in my classes is, okay, if we're going to do secular mindfulness practices out there, let's say, in public schools, it's only a matter of time before there's a lawsuit. Because if you know, a concerned parents group comes along and says, what are you doing teaching Buddhist mindfulness practices in my public school, that's a First Amendment issue. Mm. Um, that's a real world consequence. And I don't know, I'm not gonna say whether that's good or bad or whatever else, but that's that whole- That's the law. That's the law, and that's the whole context in which we live in. And so from that point of view, Three Poisons, yeah, they're religious to the extent that we have collectively decided to label Buddhism a religion. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that, we're making this distinction. And that's kind of what I was saying about that, that distinction between Buddhism as a religion, quote unquote, and secular practices being, uh, making a divide between those. That's an arbitrary decision that I think we make 
on a moment to moment basis, right? Like where, where I draw the line between Buddhism and not Buddhism is something that I do. It's not something that I just, it's something I decided last week and that's it. You know, it's something that I do in different contexts in different ways. Um, and the important thing in my, in my view is to see where we're making that distinction and in the contexts in which we're making it and who's deciding and what the consequences of those decisions might be out there in the real world. One of those consequences to me is that when what, the, this, this, the thing that we've inherited, this distinction that we've inherited in the Western context of a division between religion and secularism is that for some reason, morality and a lot of ethical conversations get pushed over here into the realm of religion. Not, not all ethics. Mm-hmm. And I, I can hear internet hackles being raised as I'm saying this, <laughs> that there are plenty of secular ethicists out there. But, for some, but I think in a lot of public discourse, you don't hear a lot of talk about ethics. Right in a lot of public discourse, um, and if you do, it's usually sort of couched in, you know, vaguely Protestant Christian family values kind of morality, which I think rubs certain people the wrong way. Um, but in a lot of public discourse, I don't think you hear a lot of that, and that worries me. That worries me because I think that unless your, I don't care what your practice is, unless your practice has some sort of compassionate concern for the welfare of others, then something is lacking, and ultimately you're just going to get stuck on the hamster wheel of making yourself feel better, making yourself happier at the expense of others. And that can only last so long uh, from the point of view of society as a culture. I think it's a real, uh, something to be concerned about or something to critically discuss. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm not gonna worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Too late. <laughs> no, we're going to look at we're it. We're gonna look at it. <laughs> we're going to look at it. <laughs> it just seems like Maybe I shouldn't say this because some right winger will listen to our podcast and figure it out. But I'll, I'll block the comments. It's okay. <laughs> couldn't like the three poisons get snuck in? You know what I mean? Like yeah, snuck into secular mindfulness so that it's not just this value-free. Just see it, right? But mm-hmm. there's like this kind of awareness of some things are harmful, <laughs> and anger is harmful. Some kinds of anger aren't actually. I think anger at injustice may be, a, I think, a legitimate kind of anger. Attachment to that, getting stuck in that is a problem, right? But, but recognizing these, they're poisons. They're not sins, right? We're not talking about sin. It's a different, the, the discourse seems different. Where you talk about it as a poison, um, maybe we could make it fit in the secular context. I don't know. No, I don't think so. Oh. I actually, <laughs> I, I would like it to be so, and I think that's just desire talking. I, <laughs> I, I just don't think it can be done, mm. uh, Reverend Harry, because I think that it is intrinsically, it is a, it, I think it is a Buddhist analysis. Mm. And that having been said, there is a photograph, you could Google it, of probably more than one, but I'm thinking of the one I found, of a, um, it looked like a man during the Occupy Wall Street movement. And he's holding a sign that says, Earth has enough for every man's need, but not enough for every man's greed. And so to me, at least in this 
in this country, it was during the, the Occupy Wall Street movement. We had Occupy Oakland. There Occupy movements across the United States. And of course, um, I think it's been international too, to some, to some extent, and linked to other liberatory movements. We can do an analysis that we don't, it doesn't have anything to do with Buddhism. And what do we come down to? We come down to greed, we come down to fear, we come down to harmful consequences of harmful actions, of harmful intentions. And to that extent, yes, I think that we can say there's a universal framework going on here. 